Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're getting there, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that uh, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew as we've been just learning about King Jesus and his kingdom. And Lord, we invite your kingdom to come this morning. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this morning, Jesus, that we would just experience the increase of your kingdom in our life. That our lives would truly be your throne this morning. And I ask Jesus that uh, you would fill us with great joy and happiness as we surrender to you today, Lord, as we surrender to your will, Lord. May the, may the joy of the Lord be our strength today. And so, God, uh, we ask your blessing upon this time this morning. We pray that your spirit would just open up the word of God to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I feel like sitting this morning, so I'm going to sit. Maybe it's the Sermon on the Mount, because it says Jesus sat as he taught the crowd. So Julie said to me, you're going to sit? I said, yeah, don't you remember? I used to always sit. But um, hey, right on. So we're here in Matthew's Gospel. We come to um, this great section called the Sermon on the Mount. And just kind of recounting and thinking about where we've been, we've seen the genealogy of the king. We've seen the birth of the king. We have seen uh, the worship of the king. We've seen John the Baptist as the king's herald. We've seen the advance of the king and the father's approval of the king from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. We've seen the testing of the king as he went into conflict in, in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil and emerged victorious. We have seen the commencement of his kingdom and ministry as he began to preach in the Galilee, and we've seen him uh, draw in his first, uh, assemble his first disciples and begin to preach this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Actually, let's just read right through these whole Beatitudes right here. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the mercy, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we come to Matthew chapter 5 here, this is a, a familiar passage, I'm sure, for, for many of you. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually three chapters long, and we're going to just scratch the surface of it this morning, not even get through this chapter 5. 
Uh, but just in particular, look at the Beatitudes this morning. And uh, this message was taught just outside of Capernaum, on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, this community of Capernaum where Jesus had made uh, his home and his base for ministry. Early on uh, in his ministry, he began to preach to the crowds, as we have seen here in the Gospel of Matthew. And the crowds uh, began to come to hear the message that Jesus was proclaiming, and they were traveling significant distance, and, I, and with significant personal cost associated with that, and, and risk. As you consider some of the communities that are listed at the end of chapter 4, people are traveling hundreds of kilometers, uh, carrying with them the sick, the lame, the ill, the, the demon-possessed, uh, to come and see Jesus, to hear him teach, and uh, to be healed by him with the hope that they will be healed. And as we consider this text where we've come to now in Matthew chapter 5 and reflect on the whole scene, it, it, it's a pretty cool picture for the mind's eye to stop and consider for a moment on this mountain, this mountainside on the outside of Capernaum, just there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the picture is this. That what Mount Sinai is for the Old Testament and for the Old Covenant and the story of the Exodus is, the Exodus, uh, so this mountain is for the New Covenant and the New Testament and the, all that is about to happen here. And the contrast is striking when you consider it. You know, Sinai and the, the savage wilderness and um, that whole scene, I actually... I was chatting with Barb this morning just before the service and she was telling me about going up Mount Sinai on, on camel a number of years back and how desolate and, and dry it was and, and the, the whole scene there. And here in the New Testament, we have the beautiful, sunny, warm slopes of the Galilee and the plants around and all that's there. And the Sinai is this desolate, desolate land without inhabitants, whereas the Galilee was a region full of many villages and, and cities and people all over the place. And at Sinai, God came down on Mount Sinai and the law came and the cloud hid God from the eyes of his people. But here on this mountain in Galilee, God sits with his people, calling them to himself, letting, him, letting them behold him with their, with their eyes. Jesus sitting with his followers, teaching. And from the midst of the multitude, we read here that the disciples themselves came to Jesus. Um, until, recent, until recently in the story of the king, uh, the disciples were just faces in the midst of the crowd. Just people like everybody else that were following Jesus and listening to his message. And Jesus called them to a life of following him. And we saw last week, they left everything. Immediately, they left everything to follow after him. And so here's Jesus on the mountain and his disciples publicly coming to him, being counted um, amongst those who follow him. And Jesus is sitting with them and the crowd is gathered around and Jesus is sitting with his followers and he begins to teach. And he begins what we call here the Sermon on the Mount. And the king proclaims here, the fundamental laws of his kingdom. I would say this. This is like the kingdom constitution. This is the laws of God's kingdom. 
This is the manifesto of King Jesus right here as we come to Matthew chapter 5 where he publicly declares the policies of his kingdom and in doing so, uh, he reveals his nature. He reveals his intentions. He reveals his heart and his motives for those who will follow him. See, Jesus is not only king, but he is prophet. And certainly, he is not the first prophet to come in the history of, in the, on the scene for God's people. Many had come before him. We think about the Old Testament and all the prophets of the Old Testament. We think of John the Baptist. Um, primarily, uh, prophets came and they had that typical tone, that typical message, which was this, repent. And Jesus came with the same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John taught the same message. Uh, the prophets that were before them called the people of God to repentance, to turn with their hearts in contrition towards God. But the typical prophet in the history of the children of Israel followed his call to repentance with a message of woe, with a message of judgment, with a message against those who failed to do so. And this is the, really the difference between John and the Baptists and all of the prophets that came before Jesus. Because as Jesus begins to proclaim this message of repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says something very different, not woe, but he speaks blessing as he calls his children to repentance. And so verse 2 says this, He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first word out of Jesus' mouth as he began to the, teach the crowds was this word, blessed. And right away, I think it caught the attention of that crowd. You know, what? What is this message? What is this teaching that is not woe, but blessing? And we call this, we call this, the, these the Beatitudes. And that means, Beatitude means this, it means happy. The word blessing means happy. Happy are the people. You know, the scripture tells us, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And Jesus, as he begins to share with this crowd these, these short sayings of happiness, I would say this, this is the pathway to happiness. If you're looking for happiness, this is the pathway right here. Jesus is going to lay it out. See, his kingdom is about happiness. It's about joy. Happiness is at the heart of the kingdom. Happiness is at the heart of the message of Jesus. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You know, David said this. We looked at this uh, not too long ago. Blessed are the man, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. And if there is one thing that should motivate joy in the, in the hearts and in the minds of God's people, it should, it should be this, that we've been reconciled to God. That our sins are forgiven. That we've been washed in the blood. Now, Trish read that passage this morning. I was going to read it, funny enough too, from Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. Jeremiah said this, This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And as Jesus teaches the crowds here, he describes 
precisely the, the attitudes that lead to happiness. If you're wondering, what are the attitudes that I should pack in my life that are going to lead to joy and are going to lead to happiness? This is them right here coming up. And when those who, you know, I think of those who don't know Jesus, I think, man, when they consider followers of Christ, when they consider Christians, their first thought should be this. Those are happy people. I mean, in the... In, in the face of whatever they've got going on, in the face of whatever situation, there, there is joy in those people's life. How can they go through that and go through this and have this going on in their lives and yet be happy, have joy, have a smile on their face? You know, when you think about following Jesus, there's, there's not to be, it's not to be a stuffy thing, you know? We don't have to be uptight. There should be joy in following the Lord. The scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm reminded of the book of Judges and Gideon. When Gideon was called to lead Israel out from under the hand of the Midianites, he began to assemble an army. And we know the story that he assembled an army, army of thousands. And the Lord spoke to his heart and he said this. He said, if you defeat Midian with this army of thousands, you'll take the glory for yourself and you think, you'll think that you did it. And so God began to whittle down the size of Gideon's army. He began to separate from the group those who were carnal-minded with tests of the flesh. And Gideon's army was reduced in numbers from thousands to hundreds. And these teachings right here that we're about to look at of Jesus are meant to do the same. They sift out the carnal. They sift out the carnal mind. They sift out those whose appetite are for carnal delights. And it starts with this first test, this first sifting where Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think about this world and the carnal mind and the appetites of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and what this world preaches is the means to attaining happiness. And the first message the world always says is this, is that to be happy, you have to assert yourself. You've got to be confident. You've got to believe in who, who you are. Highly esteem yourself and feel good about who you are. And then you move forward from that place. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who realize their own poverty. Happy are those who realize their spiritual poverty. The proud heart, the heart of self-confidence has to be broken down before God, before God can do any good with us, before we can even enter the kingdom of God. And the subjects of the kingdom can only be those who feel their need for dependence upon the king. The subjects of the kingdom are only those who feel and who sense their poverty of spirit and they decide I'm going to cast away the things that I think should be self-confidence, self-will, self-reliance, self-assertion and I'm going to throw my life in utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. And for those willing to come to Christ in poverty of spirit, Jesus says this, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not meaning that they'll rule the kingdom of heaven, but meaning that they will be counted among the subjects of the kingdom. 
We've talked about this, that the, the kingdom of heaven speaks about the rule of God. And the rule of God is present wherever self-will bows to the lordship of Jesus Christ. To them belongs heaven. Though not yet fully realized, heaven belongs to us who humble ourselves before Jesus Christ, even while we reside on earth. And happiness is found in the casting off of self-reliance in exchange for Jesus' dependency. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Each one of these beatitudes kind of just builds upon the previous one and springs forth from the previous. And if the first sounded like a paradox, this one to me does, this one sounds so even more to me. That it says, in mourning you'll be blessed. When you realize that you are a sinner and when you mourn over your sin, the Lord will come to you and he will say, I don't condemn you. I, Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. Go and sin no more. And God comforts us with his presence. And the reality of sin has to be realized in the the heart of those who are going to experience happiness that comes from God. Personal responsibility and guilt of sin, those are facts. And the greatest way to come to the recognition of, of sin in your life is to look at the law of God, to look at that first covenant from Sinai. To measure yourself against God's law. To measure Jesus against God's law. And then to make the comparison and see the great gulf that exists between you and Christ. Between God's law and the fulfillment of it. And the reality of sin has to be recognized and considered and acknowledged. And when it is and we turn in mourning from our sin. The scripture says godly sorrow leads to repentance. And such Sorrow is sure of repentance and the assurance of forgiveness will come and the comfort of God will come. And so it's through realizing our poverty spiritually, it's through mourning over sin that we enter the kingdom of God and we are comforted and we find happiness in the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Again, this is the pathway of happiness. And along the pathway of happiness, meekness is not weakness. Rather, meekness is the outcome of poverty of spirit and mourning over sin. And meekness testifies. When when a person takes on the, the heart of meekness, it testifies to the reality of these first two beatitudes in their life. Meekness is actually one of the ways that Jesus described himself. He said, I'm meek and I'm lowly of heart. I love the definition and description of meekness as a, as a term that's used to describe a, a powerful stallion that's been broken and is able to be ridden. You know, the scripture actually says of Moses that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And you think about Moses' story being raised in the house of Pharaoh and God took him and he made him the meekest man on the face of the earth by taking him from that palace from the wealth and the riches of Pharaoh's kingdom and driving him into the wilderness where he was broken like a stallion. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Think about it. You know, Jesus promised 
heaven for those who sense their spiritual poverty, and he promised the earth for those that are meek. Now, that doesn't mean, I, I don't think it means that you're going to get a, a, a slice of the 91% of the homes in Vancouver that are worth over a million bucks. You're going to inherit the earth. When Jesus says they shall inherit the earth, he means this, that those who are happy in the world are those who submit the strength of their lives to the will of God. They put the bridle in the mouth, and they put the bit in the mouth, and they hand the reins of their life over to King Jesus. And they offer the little strength that they have into their hands for his service and for his glory. And God begins to show his strength in their weakness and they enjoy life on earth, Jesus says. Happily serving, happily surrendered to the will of the king. And, and the reality is this, is that life is never as good as it is as compared to when it is, when it is lived in surrender to King Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but the, the happiest times and moments in my life is when I, when I sense surrender to King Jesus and there's just contentment in my heart. Joy in the Lord. Happiness in the midst of whatever you face because you recognize my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. And so meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a life harnessed for the King. And it's an essential thing Step in the pathway to happiness. Jesus said this, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So notice the order here of these beatitudes. First poor in spirit, then mourning over sin, then you find yourself meek, then you get hungry. Anybody hungry this morning? I only had a banana on the way out the door this morning. But you know, the other night I did this, I, I came home and there was fresh cookies. And I wasn't hungry, but I ate a lot of cookies. I, I, I heard how many had been eaten in the house before I got home, and then I, I felt the freedom to eat that many myself. And uh, they were really good. They were chocolate chip cookies. There were semi-sweet chocolate and milk chocolate mixed. And man, I began to eat, and I thought, well, I'll have two, and then it spiraled out of control. <laughs> And you know, the terrible thing was is that I ended up wrecking my dinner. You ever have that happen? You just, you come home and you're not hungry and you find something like that and you go for it and, and you wreck your meal and you miss out on the chance to eat something healthy because you've filled your life full of crap, sugar and chocolate and all this stuff that's not good for you. And the world tries to satisfy its appetite with delusions of self-grandeur. The world proclaims sin will satisfy your appetite. The world says spend your life in that direction in pursuing sin. It's like eating cookies all the time. But Jesus said this, when you're poor in spirit, rather than living for the delusion of self-grandeur, when you mourn over rather than seek to satisfy sin, when you surrender the strength of your life to God and you live in meekness, what awakens in your life is hunger, an appetite, a spiritual appetite. Rather than living for cookies, you begin to feed on the milk and the meat and the manna of God's word. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You hunger after the presence of God. 
hungering for the word of God, hungering for worship, hungering to be with God's people, looking forward to going to church. The fruits of meekness and mourning and spiritual poverty. You know, I think of Mick Jagger. You remember what he said? I can't get no satisfaction. And Jesus said this, uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. If you're looking for satisfaction in this life, it's in the pursuit and the hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it doesn't come out of order. You must take the steps down the pathway to happiness to awaken that hunger that will be satisfied. And hunger and thirst are metaphors for having a passionate desire, desiring righteousness. And Jesus promises this, that when his people hunger after righteousness, he'll satisfy their desire. And I think about that and I think, wow, it, it's not something that you earn. He doesn't say when you're righteous, I'll satisfy you. He says when you hunger after it, I'll satisfy you. It's not something you work for. It's a gift. It's grace. It is simply a desire that God promises he will satisfy if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think about mercy. Mercy does not just, you know, it's not just having pity for someone. But being merciful is to be compassionate. And it's one of the things that happens in a person's life when they're emptied of themselves and they're filled with the love of God. And the more a, a man or, or woman hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the more merciful they will be to others around them. And the opposite is true. The more sinful a person is, the more harsh and, and, and critical and self-serving they will be. And Jesus says this, that he blesses the merciful. Flip side of the coin is this, is that a life of selfishness is hell. A life of living for yourself is not one that finds satisfaction or, or joy or happiness in this life. A, a life of mercy, on the other hand, is like the sweet savor of heaven. And becoming merciful is the result of experiencing the aforementioned Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And when those things are happening in the subject of the kingdom, a, a person who belongs to Jesus, they have deep experiences of God's love in their life. They, have, they experience the reality of God's mercy and patience in their own life. And when we come to experience the love of God in our lives, when we recognize how patient he is with, you know, a wooden noggin like mine, numbskulls like us, when we experience his mercy and his patience, then we can't help but extend it to others. To be merciful towards others. And being merciful towards others is a reflection of experiencing God's mercy. And Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And as we are merciful to others, Jesus promises this, God will be merciful to you. It's a beautiful cycle that just starts here, like a runaway train. 
He extends mercy to me. I extend mercy to others. Then he extends more mercy to me. Then me to others. Then he to me. And it goes on and on and on. And the experience of growing in the, in the reality of knowing God's mercy grows in our lives. But I think about the world. You know, the world, on the other hand, often gives back like a mirror. Those who are merciful get mercy. And those who are uh, harsh get a reflection of themselves. And the exception is this, Jesus. That he gives mercy. He gives mercy, and then as we give mercy, he gives more mercy. More mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, purity of heart is just another step in this pathway of happiness. It's not the first step. It's a step down the path further along, and there cannot be purity of heart where there is no realization of a spiritual poverty. There cannot be purity of heart where there is no mourning over sin and no meekness and no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And no mercy. See, those things come first. Then comes purity of heart. Purity of heart is progressive and, and grows as our vision of Jesus grows. You know, I think about this side of eternity. We, we don't get to see Jesus. You know, we're not, we're not sitting on the mountainside as the disciples were and as the, as the crowds were that day as he gave this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. But we do grow in this sense. We do see Jesus in this sense that we understand uh, and we grow in the knowledge of his character. We grow in the assurance of his presence. We grow in our sense of communion with him. We grow in the reality and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as purity of heart grows, so grows clearer your vision of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And we grow, as we grow in these things, we see him clearly. clearly. I, you know, I think of the, the prodigal son who wallowed in the filth of sin, feasting on the food that belonged to swine, and his vision grew dim. And just as purity brings sharper vision, so impurity blinds vision of God, blinds vision of who Jesus is, you know, the wicked only see blackness even where the sun is present. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I would say this, there's a double fulfillment in this beatitude, the, the two sides of eternity. The scripture says without holiness, no one will see God. And purity of heart is, a, is the condition which enables the vision of God in heaven also. Not just on this side of eternity, but in heaven. You know, I was thinking about this as I was considering this. I'm so looking forward to the spring, especially this morning. I was, please, Jesus, let the sun come. <laughs> um, and one of the things I noticed in the last kind of week or two is that those little blades that come up before the crocuses come are out. Have you noticed? And I love that. It's always one of my favorite times of year. Uh, they always come later in our yard because we're like facing due west. And so I like start seeing them all over town and then like, Two or three weeks later, they start to come up in our yard. And uh, love the crocus. The crocus is one of my favorite flowers, and I think it's because it means spring is near. <laughs> the weather's changing. And crocuses are, 
are cool. They, we've got them in our yard. They just close up at night, and then during the day, they, they open as the sun shines on them. And our lives are kind of similar in the sense that as we see Christ, as his light shines upon us, and we assimilate what we see into our lives, what we see of Jesus, uh, like a sun on the flower, he just begins to open up the petals of our life. And people ask, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, if I could just see God, you know, why don't I see God? Why can't I see God? If God would just show himself to me, then I'd believe in him. And the, the right response to that question or that statement, I, I think, is this. is Could it be because you're not pure in heart? Because Jesus promises that those who are pure in heart will, will see him. They know the reality of having the sun shine his presence on their lives. And the same is, that, I mean, that's true for the unsaved. Maybe it's because you're not pure in heart, but it's true for the saved at the same time. You know, maybe you say, in my life, I'm not seeing God. I can't, where is he right now? I've lost vision of Jesus. And it's not that you're lost, but vision has been obscured. And could it be an issue of purity of heart, I might ask you this morning? And if it could be, or whatever, I would just say this. Walk your life through this pathway of happiness, through the steps of the Beatitudes, and ask God, restore my vision of Jesus as I go through these. I think of the Lord Jesus as he just, he healed the blind. He healed those who lost their vision, who, who could not see him. When they came to him, he opened their eyes. And so if you've lost your vision, prayerfully walk through the Beatitudes and ask Jesus to restore it. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, the followers of Jesus have been called to peace. When we were found by Jesus, we found peace. We say, he is our peace. He's the prince of peace. And now Jesus tells his followers that they must not only have peace, but they must be those who make it. They must be peacemakers. And, and being a peacemaker does not mean, you know, forming a blockade somewhere and doing a peace sign and stopping people from, I don't know, whatever, cutting trees or saving whales. I, I was even thinking, you know, I love the NHL. I love a good fight in the NHL. And I think, ah, oh, I hate those guys who just say, they think they're righteous by saying, we're going to stop fighting. It, I think there's nothing wrong with a good fight sometimes. <laughs> Anyways, that's another story. But <laughs> a peacemaker, amen, that's right. Can I hear an amen? If you want to invite me over to watch MMA at your house, I will come, okay? So, you know, a peacemaker is not, not that's, a peacemaker is not someone who stands around trees and sings kumbaya. Uh, a peacemaker is someone who's trained in all of the preceding steps on the pathway of happiness. And what brings more happiness than watching someone make peace with God? A peacemaker is someone who brings others to the Prince of Peace. The peacemaker's one who encourages others to be reconciled to God. And the peacemaker is one who partners with 
with Christ's work of reconciliation. And Jesus says this, they'll be called sons of God as he is the son of God. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we had our week of prayer. And, and for me personally, I was just going in the week just saying, God, I need vision, man. I just ask you to restore vision. I ask you to give vision. Um, and one of the things God has put on my heart for our church is to, um, to have a, um, an evangelism team. And you're going to start to hear me chat about this. been just praying, praying through the idea. And um, I, I'm not talking about, you know, knocking on people's doors and standing out on the, preach, on the street corner, um, proclaiming the gospel necessarily. But um, the thought is, is those interested that we begin to just gather and pray for the lost that we begin to talk about strategies of sharing our faith, that we um, pray for specific people, that we ask God to provide us opportunities, that we just get our hearts in the spot, that we're prepared. That when the Spirit opens the door, we're ready to walk in and share Jesus with those whom uh, He would open the door for. And I love this. This encouraged me this week. The peacemaker partners with God's work of reconciliation. And Jesus says, they are called sons of God as he is the son of God. Little s, sons, as he is the big S, son of God. And Jesus goes on and he says this, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, I read these last, these last two Beatitudes, you kind of, they get paired together. They're really, they're kind of one and the same. Both say this, that it's a blessing to be persecuted. Really? <laughs> really? Uh, I mean, in terms of the paradoxes that these beatitudes, all these beatitudes, these statements present to us, I mean, to me, uh, this one takes the cake. Seems like the biggest contradiction. That, that when you're persecuted, you're blessed. You're happy. Happy? Really? I mean, all of the previous Beatitudes express what a follower of Jesus is to be. They're, Jesus is talking about issues of character, of heart, of inner attitude. Jesus is saying to us here as he, as he teaches the crowd, this is what a child of the kingdom looks like. This is what one of the subjects of my kingdom looks like. But here, as he gives this last Beatitude, he tells us, how some in the world will receive or respond to the child of the kingdom. I, I'm reminded that Jesus said this. He said, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Christ, as we weigh this whole matter, this pathway of happiness, the manifesto of his kingdom, he does not call us to a life of reigning. Though we will reign. He does not call us to a life of dominion. Though he gives us dominion. He does not call us to a life of honor. Though we will be given honor. And we will ultimately have victory. 
But he calls us to share in his suffering, in scorn, in persecution, to share in his crown. And the first crown that was placed on the head of Jesus that was placed on his brow was a crown of thorns. Yet even knowing that as we serve Christ, there will be persecution. Jesus says this, there is blessing in the midst of that. There is a happiness that comes for suffering for the sake of righteousness. Happiness that comes when God lifts your face up to him in the midst of persecution. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's a great little book, uh, an interesting book called Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have you ever had that? Maybe you got it on your shelf at home. It's kind of a classic. I used to have it on my shelf. It's disappeared somewhere over the years. But um, it's an old book. It was written in 1563. Uh, that's when it was first published. And you can, I mean, it's just, it's just been published year after year over, over the centuries. And uh, it's a little book that tells the account of different individuals who died as martyrs for their faith. Uh, from the f- time of Christ, right from the first century of the church up until... Uh, and the th- until the 1500s, and it, it's kind of fascinating. It's just short little stories of these individuals and what they experienced, and there's all the ways people gave their lives for Christ, and different ones, you know, stand out in my mind remembering reading that one. I, I remember one where there was an individual, and they, they dipped him in honey, and then they set bees upon him. I... You read in there stories of people being sawn in two and burned at the stake for faith in Jesus Christ and the different ways that they were persecuted and, and died for following Jesus and for the testimony of his gospel. Uh, I read recently of a, of a story where Roman soldiers near the end of the Roman Empire went into a community, a village of Christians, and they, they took 40 believers and they took them out onto a frozen... to sit down this morning. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. Took them out, these soldiers took them out into a a frozen lake and they stood out there uh, naked and cold and the soldiers built their fire on the shore and began to taunt the believers and said, look, you you can come around the fire, you can have a blanket and we'll give you your clothes back. Just deny the name of Jesus and come on over here. And those believers standing out on their lake just began to sing a song that came to their hearts right there in the moment and they sang 40, 40 soldiers for Christ standing for his name. And they sang and they sang and they took comfort and Jesus comforted them but as time went on one of the midst, one in their midst out on the lake uh, left the group and went to the fire where the soldiers were and, and denied Christ so that he could warm himself and the soldiers Uh, continued to taunt and the Christians changed their tune and they said, instead of 40, they sang 39 soldiers for Christ standing for his name. And as the scene went on, history tells this, that one of the Roman soldiers uh, stripped down and walked out onto the lake and joined the Christians and said, no, not 39, 40. And he went and stood for the name of Christ and died with them. And Jesus said, 
Uh, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It, when you think of the martyrs and you think of these stories, they're, they're not people who had something truly against them except this. They stood for the name of Jesus. They were martyred on his account. And Jesus says, rejoice. Be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets before you. You know, often when I read those accounts of people who have given their lives for Jesus and endured for their faith, one of the amazing things that stands out to me is the secret supply of strength that is handed out from the Holy Spirit in the midst of those times. The Holy Spirit imparts in the face of death to those who are faithful to Christ a strength to stand for his name. And what's so great about that little book of martyrs, Fox's book of martyrs, is not the account of these terrible ways that people died, but it's the account of the strength that the Spirit of God gave to those who stood for the name of Jesus. Because in the midst of their situations, they proclaimed the gospel, and they sang hymns, and they gave glory to the name of Jesus. And in the face of death, they experienced intimacy with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit supplied them with joy in the face of death. I think of the words of Paul who said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the reality is this, is that when you give your life for Christ, the glory does not die when grief has passed. Happy is the one who is persecuted, Jesus said. That one persecuted joins a great host of others, Jesus said. They're amongst those called the company of prophets. What a cool thought. Counted amongst the prophets, Jesus said. And they'll profit in heaven with great reward, Jesus promised. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when I think of our church and in, in serving Jesus in Canada and our country, I often wonder, you know, what lays ahead of us in the future. Do you ever think about that? I often think, wow, God. I mean, what are you doing in our nation? What's happening here? I, I, I wonder if there are days of great persecution that lay before us in our lifetime for Christ. And I think if they should come, may God give us grace, you know, to stand for the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. And we read here that God does do that. That he supplies happiness. That he supplies joy. That we are blessed when we are persecuted. Blessed in the face of persecution. And so the pathway of happiness for the children of God, for those subjects of the kingdom. This is the beginning of the kingdom manifesto, the start right here. These, these first 12 verses uh, called the Beatitudes. You know, it's been said this, that sound doctrine is to be the root of our lives, but the fruit should be holy living. And these, these Beatitudes present to us sound doctrine Sound doctrine for the subjects of the kingdom, the pathway of happiness, but the fruit 
should be this. Holiness in our lives. As we read this, that we should produce these very things that Jesus has spoke of here if we are subjects of the kingdom. And so, uh, I just want to say to you this morning, may Jesus Christ fill you with happiness. May he fill you with happiness. I pray, I pray for you this week that, that the joy of the Lord would be your strength, that you would find joy in Christ in the face of whatever you do. And if you've lost your vision, if you've lost your direction, if you feel as though you cannot see Christ, I encourage you uh, this week to take time and to walk through this pathway of happiness, to weigh your life against these beatitudes and turn to Jesus in your poverty. Let's pray this morning. Worship team, we're going to invite you to come. Would you guys stand with me?